when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We've got another lockdown learning episode for you today. We're releasing them every Friday. Last week, we had... The brilliant Anna Whitelock talking about the Tudors. That was at your request. We asked history teachers what they could use a bit of help with. Uh, This week, we've got another brilliant friend of history hit, Mark Morris. He's a medieval historian. He's just written a gigantic, fantastic book on early medieval uh, England and Britain, the Anglo-Saxons. You are going to love that book when it comes out. We're going to get him back on the pod when it comes out. But in the meantime, he's here just taking us on a very kind of brief overview. What were the Middle Ages? What were they in between? What were they middle of? And are many of the cliches about that medieval period fair or are they the product of the fervent imagination of later generations? As with the episode last week, the very brilliant Simon Beale, who's a wonderful history and politics teacher here in the UK, he's produced a worksheet for students that they can fill in as they listen to this episode. I'm hugely, hugely grateful to him for doing so. The Middle Ages is a bit of a tricky one. It's a huge subject. We've got ones coming up on the Russian Revolution and the New Deal, so we'll try and keep those a bit more focused. But please, everyone, go and have a look at Simon's worksheets. I'll also be tweeting those out. I'm at the History Guy on Twitter. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's always a pleasure, Dan. You've got the most difficult. We've been asking history teachers what they want, what they need from us. And they've, you know, the New Deal, you know, there's quite particular things, you know, med- medicine in the 19th century. Uh, lots of people said the Middle Ages. So I thought, well, Mark Morris knows the Middle Ages. It's only about a thousand years of history. It's incredibly complex. What do you think we mean in schools and teachers and even just general people on the street mean by the Middle Ages? In the UK, when we talk about the Middle Ages, there's a tendency to assume that it means after the Norman Conquest. So anything from 1066 to the late 15th century. And you know, that's one possible definition. Um, and I think that's kind of because, you know, institutions like English Heritage talk about the Anglo-Saxon period before 1066 and then the Middle Ages after 1066. But properly speaking, the Middle Ages is is a term that's been since the Renaissance and it was coined in the Renaissance, so say in the late 15th, 16th centuries. 
And the question to ask is, what do you know? What does what does the Middle Ages come in the middle of? And in the Renaissance, they they were congratulating themselves that they had rediscovered the 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 arts that had been lost of ancient Rome and ancient Greece, particularly ancient Rome. So they'd recovered the Latin language and Latin literature. They'd recovered the architecture that had ended with Rome. And so the Middle Ages, or the Middle Age, as they call it in Europe, Moyen Age, was the bit between Rome and the Renaissance. And so, as you said, about a thousand years, if you kind of, you know, accept that Rome fell at some point in the fifth century and the Renaissance began at some point in the 15th, it's a whole millennium between circa 500 and 1500. So that's the, the Middle Ages or the Middle Age. They've got a funny reputation in the Middle Ages, haven't they? Uh, people think of them as violent somehow primitive, divided, the power was all divided up into kind of local warlords. Is there any truth to those cliches? Well, I think the first thing to say is that from the first, so when it's coined the term medieval in the Renaissance, it is a pejorative term. So it wasn't, they weren't sort of saying neutrally, oh, this was the bit in the middle. They were congratulating themselves on their rediscovery of classical learning and classical culture and saying this bit in the middle was by implication worse. It was barbarous. This was the, you know, the time when people were sort of running around, you know, painted blue with their bottoms hanging out. And of course, that pejorative meaning of medieval carries forward right to the present. So if people talk about, you know, they, you know, as a lazy journalist's kind of cliche, they will say things like, oh, this is kind of medieval economy or a medieval famine or a medieval plague, or I'm going to get medieval on your ass. And these are all bad things. Is there any truth in that? Well, medievalists would would start to kind of cavil at that and say no, or not entirely. They would say that the achievement of the Renaissance is overstated and there were lots of big leaps forward in the medieval period itself, particularly the 12th century, when lots of these um, things really, you can argue that the 12th century, the Renaissance of the 12th century was much more important than the Renaissance with a capital R of the 15th century. So lots of things like classical architecture, Roman-style architecture, was being um, rediscovered in the 12th century, and that's why you get Romanesque in the 11th century, indeed. To answer your question uh, more fully, though, there's, I, there's no doubt in, in sort of the, my mind, although people will argue against it, that after the fall of Rome, there was a considerable dip in um, living standards for a lot of people, that there was a lot of violence and a lot of chaos. And of course, you know, Rome was this kind of, as you say, a super state, a great empire that stretched all the way from Britain in the north to sort of uh, North Africa in the south, from the Atlantic in the west to Arabia in the east. And a huge kind of free trade zone, um, you know, where armies and goods could be moved around very quickly and efficiently. And then for a lot of people, the standard of living was higher than the period that followed, particularly in Western Europe, in places like um, Gaul and, um, and, and Britain. In the period that comes after Rome, sort of 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries, I think the, it's the, I don't want to sort of say the cliche of the Middle Ages is true, but there was a lot of violence and chaos and upheaval from which the successor states to Rome eventually emerged and there was more stability. So you have, you know, the emerging kingdoms in Anglo-Saxon England, Wessex, Mercia, Northumbria, East Anglia, and what become the, the nation states of Europe eventually in um, Francia and Italy and, and, and Spain. So short answer to the question is, yes, the, I think the Middle Ages is unfairly pilloried throughout the sort of the period of, from the Renaissance onwards. But there's, there's a hard kernel of truth, especially for the early period, that it was less sophisticated, if that's a, perhaps a more appropriate word, uh, than the, the Roman Empire that preceded it. You think of the Middle Ages, you definitely think of castles. 
a castle's a reflection of of how sort of big empires had been replaced by powerful local lords. There's cert- I mean, there's certainly nothing, of course, on the scale of Rome. But when you every time when you said, "Well, there's nothing on," you know, "there's no, there are no big empires." I'm thinking, "Well, there's the Carolingian Empire, and there's the Angevin Empire, which was uh, put together by Henry II." And now, the 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 objection against kind of regarding those as empires is, you say, "Well, if they they don't compare to Rome in any way because they're ramshackle assemblages." Certainly, in the case of the Angevin Empire, that's a modern coinage to describe this kind of um, consortium of lands that's put together by Henry II and his sons. In the early period, say after the break with Rome between Britain and the rest of the empire in the early 5th century, it seems fairly clear that, that what happens in Britain is you have a galaxy of new states. You have kind of initially a sort of um, a complete collapse of, of society uh, or of Roman order and warlordism and chaos. And out of that, by the time you get to the mid or the late 6th century, you have the, the formation of kingdoms. But these are very tiny kingdoms in the first instance. So, you know, every, it might, might just be a, you know, a, a few hundred square miles or even smaller. And it's not until we get until uh, to the, the 7th century that we see the emergence of kingdoms like Kent, East Anglia, Mercia, Wessex, etc., so yes, initially um, you get smaller polities, but in the case of let's take let's stick with Britain for a minute. By the time you get to the tenth century, in the case of Britain, you've got the emerging kingdom of England. So all these lesser Anglo-Saxon kingdoms have fused or been fused together by military coercion from the kings of Wessex. They've become a large state, England, which as states go, is fairly big. You know, I mean, England in the 10th century is more or less the same shape and size that England is now. It's fairly centralised as a state. So it has institutions based around the monarchy, which is increasingly by the 11th century resident at Westminster. So it's got, and it's got sort of a uniformity to it as well. So it's got, you know, England is divided into shires, shires are divided into hundreds. There's one coin that runs throughout the whole kingdom with the king's head on it, uh, minted to a universal standard. There are states, uh, England may be exceptional and pre- um, precocious in the way it, um, in terms of its unity, but there are states in the Middle Ages starting to emerge. Um, so I don't, I, I take your point uh, that there, there's a lot of um, local power as well. Let's keep talking about power. Uh, kings really matter, don't they? You think about William the Conqueror, Henry II, Edward I of England, their personality, their strengths, their weaknesses, they can have a big effect on the country they're ruling. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the personality of the king the, of the king matters a great deal. I mean, I, it's often a question I, it gets put to me is, you know, what makes a good king or what do people want out of a king? And the, the, I think the best answer is you look at what they made a king promise to do when they swore him in or whether when they made a king, which is a king is made from 1066 onwards by the coronation. That's the sort of a constitutive act. And when a king is crowned, when a king is created, that he is made to promise, first of all, to to defend and protect the church, to abolish bad laws, those kind of things. The other thing that is not in the coronation oath is to um, defend the realm, to kind of, you know, um, uh, protect people sort of with the, the, the might of his sword. So you look at what people at the time wanted and why why certain kings are judged to be good or bad. You take a king like Edward I. He was considered good, although you know, considered bad in, in later centuries, um, judging him by sort of you know modern yardsticks, or indeed judging him if you are a, a Welsh, Scottish or Irish perspective, because they're the countries he went to war against. Um, he's the, vi- the villain in Mel Gibson's Braveheart. 
But contemporary Englishmen regarded him as a great thing precisely because he wore down his, his, his Celtic enemies and because he reformed government at the start of his reign, which uh, government was reckoned to be corrupt, particularly local government, um, because he taxed his people lightly. So, uh, you know, the kind of key things are being a strong leader in war, clearly very important. It's very hard for medieval kings to sort of... Um, the only other model is kind of to be sort of very pious and saintly, sort of like Edward the Confessor. And whilst there are some kings that try that model, um, big fan of Edward the Confessor is Edward's father, Henry III. It's never as successful. They're never regarded as, as successful as kings like Henry II, Henry V, Edward I, who are warrior kings. Doing good justice also very important. I mean, keeping keeping the majority of your subjects happy and making them feel that their, their, their grievances are being redressed. And this you know, goes right down to the level of the gentry, but it's particularly important um, for the aristocracy. If you kind of convince people you're doing a good job and you're fair and reasonable, and that's something that King John managed to screw up royally, is the sense that you know he was seen to be sort of favouring um, cronies or charging people large amounts of money for judgments. And in general, just if you, you want to avoid the situation where more than 50% of the people think you're doing it badly, uh, you cannot busk through in the way you can as a modern political leader with kind of 30% of people thinking you're great and 70% of people complaining about you. Uh, you have to have an overall majority of people thinking you're doing a good job. How about rebellions? Does it feel like there's a lot of rebellions in the Middle Ages? Uh, the Peasants' Revolt famously in the 14th century. Lots of lords always kicking off. What causes rebellions? It's very difficult to generalise about rebellions and uprisings and you know, sort of to lump them all together doesn't really do them justice. I mean, I think there are occasions where I think when you have successful uprisings against the king, uh, they tend to be uh, broadly based. So a king is unpopular, let's say, because his policies are causing uh, misery across a you know, broad spectrum of people. So it's not just aggrieved peasants who in if, if the aristocracy is doing OK and the peasants are revolting then the aristocracy might aid the king in in suppressing that revolt the revolts that tend to be successful tend to be uh not just plainly aristocratic or just you know the people at the bottom of the tree but but uh, a regime is unpopular across all of society and various bits of society from you know the quite low down what i'm trying to say is that the aristocracy if they're aggrieved maybe you know, will be able to rally people to their cause and raise armies and say we must have regime change at the top and they will be cheered by people beneath them. So that's, uh, you know, you can think of examples like King John's reign where that happens. There are other occasions, of course, where people further down the, the social pecking order don't really have any skin in the fight. So if you take something like the Wars of the Roses, that seems to me to be more um, aristocratic squabbles about who gets to wear the crown. And you get that all the time, of course, um, in, in a system where... Uh, it's notionally hereditary, but there's a lot of wriggle room, uh, especially if the king doesn't have any direct heirs. You get people saying, well, I ought to be king. And then you, if you can convince enough people of your right, then, of course, you can raise arms against the king. I just gonna, One thing I would take issue with, though, is that, of course, looking back from our perspective, it seems that there's rebellion all the time in the Middle Ages. And it, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, it can seem like it can seem like anarchy from this distance. And you develop this pejorative kind of Shakespearean or Walter Scott view of the Middle Ages, where everyone is fighting all the time. And of course, the majority of people in this in any period are, by their standards, 
probably by our standards, kind of quite sensible. And they know that in order to kind of like enjoy, I mean, to take aristocrats, they're normally persuade, portrayed as the bad guys, the famous robber barons of the Middle Ages. But in order to enjoy the fruits of the land, in order to get, you know, to raise rents, they don't, they can't oppress their peasantry the whole time and terrorise them. They have, they, they have, to, have to have a productive peasantry. They have to have productive fields. They have to be able to cream off a surplus. So they're not forever going round burning each other's crops and making war on each other. And someone asked me, I did my doctoral thesis on the Earls of Norfolk in the 13th century. And I, I, I always took umbrage with the suggestion that they were forever rebelling. It was kind of like, well, this one rebelled against King John and this one rebelled against Henry III. And then this one rebelled against Edward I. And I would point out that those, each of those rebellions were 40 years apart. So it's like kind of pointing to my family in the 20th century and saying, oh, gosh, the Morris family were forever fighting the Germans. First, there was 1914. Then there was 1939 to 45. You know, it's like you can't sort of the tendency with the Middle Ages is when there's nothing happening, there's not much reported in the chronicles. What gets reported is the rebellions and the civil wars, you know. So there are great periods of the Middle Ages, 99 percent of the time, where England was much more happy and bucolic and sort of merry England. And that tends to get forgotten if you just concentrate on the narrative of kings and revolting peasants you mentioned peasants the vast majority of the the population i suppose were peasants and can you just talk a little bit about what their life would have been like how tied to the land how uh, and, and 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 presumably overwhelming percentage of the population of england farming yeah, I think, I mean, again, it's not really the the, the, uh, the thing I'm hottest on in the Middle Ages. But my understanding is 90% plus of the population are, are involved in agriculture. So peasants. Peasants, of course, the, the word means is paysan. It's from the, the French word pays. So it's um, it's people tied to the land. And yes, for, until the, the until the advent of uh, industrialization and mechanization, that was true right up to the the nineteenth century. The majority of people worked the land, so the landscape would have been you know when we sort of drive through the landscape today and we don't see anyone in the fields. You would have walked everywhere, everywhere you walked or rode in the Middle Ages, you would have seen hundreds of people wor working all the fields. One of the things that's always interested me is is the sort of change that's brought about by the Norman Conquest. And one of the great changes that happens in England, but sort of as a result of the conquest, is Prior to the conquest, in lots of places in England, um, the peasantry were slaves. And this is not the entire peasantry, but say the bottom 20% of the peasantry were likely to be slaves. And as a result of the Norman conquest, the Normans, in short, introduced um, or, or banned slavery and 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 preferred their um, their peasants to be serfs. And you might say, well, there's not a huge amount of difference between being a serf and a slave. But the difference, I think, at the time was was considerable, although not although underreported, because slaves in pre-conquest Britain were like slaves in the classical world. They could be families could be broken up. So you were regarded as just the chattels, the property of your master, your lord. And they could say, well, I'm selling your daughter now or I'm going to sell your sons, you know, to this other person or sell them out of the country into the into the hands of slave traders. After the Norman Conquest, that doesn't happen, uh, or at least it fades away in a couple of generations. And although people are tied to the land and their lords have rights over them and they can make them work certain days of the week on the lord's domain, that kind of thing, they can't be broken up. They can't be sold as individuals and they can't be killed either with if you I mean, in the, in the slaves, as I say, they're regarded they don't have rights. They don't have any more rights than the beasts in the field. So they could be killed if they offended by their lords. And, they, you know, that was not illegal. 
it was might have been considered immoral because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. But it wasn't a crime to kill a slave in pre-conquest England. It would have been after the conquest. So although they don't have many rights up until um, the, the Peasants' Revolt of the 14th century, their rights are improved as a result of the conquest. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What about the church? The church looms large uh, in the sources for for the Middle Ages, partly because the church men wrote most of the sources. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, again, something I, I, I sort of always cavil at a bit, is that there that people will say, oh, well, um, the church was always complaining about this and they're always complaining about and King John is the prime example in, in the stuff I've done. People say, well, you know, King John wasn't as bad as people think because he, he annoyed the church, he fell out with the Pope and therefore the church hated him. And I always point out, well, yes, that's true. But so did everybody else, because one of the fallacies of the Middle Ages, which you still see in school textbooks, is that the only people writing things down were churchmen. And that's just simply not true. There are lots of secular voices you can point to from the Middle Ages. For me, a very famous one that's that's you know, people always say he's unknown, but now he's sort of the most famous unknown man in medieval England is William Marshall, uh, the, the, the great courtier of the Angevin kings who rose to be regent of England under Henry III. I mean, the history of William Marshall, the, the, the only, uh, the earliest, rather, uh, biography of a layman we have who's not a, a royal, um, that's written by a layman. That's written by a troubadour poet. So, and, and, and that also says terrible things about King John, what a rotter he was. So the point one is that we have, a, we have not just um, church sources, we have lay sources as well. Um, 
telling us about the Middle Ages. But yes, you're right. The church is hugely important because initially, at least, the church is the, the literate class is the clergy. To be a cleric or a clerk, that the two things are synonymous. If we talked about a clerk these days, you'd just think of someone who was able to write. But clergy and clerk come from the same root and meant the same thing. If you had a little clergy, it meant you could read Latin and you could um, therefore claim privilege of clergy, which was to be tried in church courts. Tell me about chivalry. Uh, what What is uh, this sort of this sort of uh, the warrior code and how much of that is stories that these men would have told about themselves and how much is that sort of rooted in actual practice in this period? This society since the fall of Rome that to be successful meant you had to be a successful warrior. So if you go back to the Roman period, um, your arist- Roman aristocrats are not armed. They're not required to be soldiers. Rome has a professional army and you, you know, you, you um, has a professional soldiery that's paid for by the state. When Rome collapses, the people in charge are, are warrior rulers. So the, the, the barbarian rulers who succeed Rome, the Anglo-Saxon kings of England, if you like, they're, they, it's, a, it's a warrior aristocracy. And to get on in life, you have to be able to kick yourself out and be armed and be able to raise armed retinues. So in a sense, there's a, there's a sort of you could say, well, the, the deepest roots of chivalry go back to that sense of, um, you know, whatever honour there is amongst these warriors. And you could look for, say, proto-chivalric attitudes in something like Beowulf. There are, however, other elements in, ter- in terms of chivalry. Chivalry proper, I would say, kind of begins round about the 11th, 12th centuries. And, and large, some part of it is the limitation of violence. So if you look, and there's no sense in, say, Beowulf, for example, of... Um, you know, perhaps we should kind of limit the bloodshed. It's all kind of like, you know, it's better to sort of, you know, die fighting. And there's a sense of sort of almost a sort of, uh, you know, like the sort of the Viking idea of kind of like, this is the way you kind of live and die. And the more blood you spill, the better almost. By the 11th century, particularly um, uh, in Francia in the 11th century, there's this emerging idea that like, well, you should spare your enemies and you shouldn't kill your enemies. Uh, Make war on them. Um, but when you capture them or when when you defeat them, don't immediately hack them to pieces, but imprison them. If they promise to be very well behaved, then perhaps release them in, term, in exchange for a ransom or the surrender of their land. So an, an attempt, you might say, kind of led by the church. I think the church has a role in it. Certainly you've got a thing in the 11th century in Francia called the Peace of God movement, which is the church trying to limit the violence among aristocrats. But also, I think, between aristocrats themselves, just the sense that if, you know, you can't have this endless cycle of eye for an eye, tooth, tooth for a tooth violence. So it's, uh, they, they see the sense in it. Again, that's something that's introduced to England after 1066 by the Normans. And um, it does last a long time. This, so, so this sense of not executing people when they're on their knees begging you for mercy. And that it only starts to disintegrate, I think, in the late 13th, early 14th centuries. Ironically, just at the time when kind of the sort of chansons de geste and, and the sort of the tales of chivalry are at their height. So I suppose there's an argument for saying later medieval chivalry in the sense of poems you're talking about. That, that's to some extent a tinsel to kind of, you know, disguise a society that's becoming more violent. But chivalry is such a nebulous term, it's such a broad term. It, you know, if you talk about chivalrous society, it's, it's a society that's taking its cue from an upper class caste that celebrates its martial prowess. So it's stained glass windows, you know, with, with heraldic shields in heraldry everywhere, heraldry on tombs, heraldry in churches. So I say chivalry is very difficult to pin down. It can mean anything from like, you know, from, from the Dark Ages, quote unquote, up until the, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. We'll talk about chivalry. Laying a cloak in a puddle can be considered chivalrous. 
But I think it's a use from my my sort of more narrow definition is not killing people after they have surrendered to you, and that's something that's ushered in in the eleventh century and disappears in the thirteenth. Mark Morris, thank you for uh, coming on and sharing so many wonderful insights with everybody. Uh, you've written some fabulous books. You've you've just got a new one on the Anglo-Saxons coming out soon, and you're going to come on this podcast and do one. I'm going to grill you about that because I love that book. Looking forward to having you on soon. As I say, always a pleasure. Take care, Dan. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.